What an awesome morning so far, and uh, how fun uh, to be able to witness those baptisms today and to share that together as a church family. It is so good to have you with us today. Uh, my name is Paul. I'm the lead pastor here at Genesis. Welcome to Genesis Church. Welcome to all of those that are watching online. We always have so many people that are tuning in uh, with us from different places here locally and even around the world, so we're glad you're here today as well. And whether you call Genesis your church, and uh, this is a place where you spend time uh, with us, or maybe you're here because a friend invited you. Maybe you're here with family today. We, we just want you to know whoever you are, uh, you are welcome here. So thank you. Thanks for coming to celebrate Easter uh, with us today. And I got to tell you, you know, as the guy who's teaching this morning, you might think like, we just can't wait to rush up here. Man, there's this pressure. Like you sit down there and think, I, don't mess this up, Paul. You know, I felt like that's what God was saying to me. There's just so many good things that are happening. And those baptisms are certainly great because that's a big part of who we are, you know, that uh, we want to see life change. We're, uh, our, our mission is helping people find their way back to God. That's an example uh, of what we see God doing in our church and, and maybe, maybe what he wants to accomplish in some of your lives uh, here today. Uh, 18 years ago, uh, there was a church in Chicago, Illinois that hosted a public debate featuring two speakers in their respective fields, uh, two experts. Frank Zindler, a spokesman for American Atheists Incorporated, was invited to debate William Lane Craig, a Christian with a PhD in theology. Uh, 8,000 people came to be a part of this event, to watch it in person. But not only those, there were others who tuned in across radio stations as the, broad, as, as the event was broadcast for many to hear. There, the crowd, as you can imagine, was made up of so many different people. There were uh, professed atheists, agnostics, skeptics, uh, Christians, Christians who were new to their faith, Christians that had been around church, been around faith for a really long time. And at the end of the night, they were all asked to vote, to cast a vote, for who they believe to be the winner of the debate, 82% concluded that the case for Christianity was indeed the most compelling. 47 people uh, expressed that they had become a follower of Jesus as a direct result of the debate. Interestingly, by contrast, not one person that evening became an atheist. What was it about the debate that was so impactful? Like, what was it about William Lane, or William Lane Craig's presentation that caused so many people to make a decision to follow Jesus? He simply defended the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He helped people see that the only rational conclusion after looking at all the evidence is that there indeed is something amazing about Jesus, about the cross, and the empty tomb. That was Mary Magdalene's experience. We looked at her story just a moment ago from John chapter 20. She spent time with Jesus. Uh, she grew close to him. She was there at the cross. She was there again at the empty tomb. God gave her this wonderful opportunity to encounter the resurrected Jesus and to be one of the first messengers of the good news to the world, which was spectacular when you think about it, that women had little to no rights in an ancient culture like this one, and God chose her that Jesus chose a woman. Same thing for Peter and John, the rest of the disciples. They not only grew to love and to trust Jesus, but they watched him die. They, they grieved his death, uh, but they were also there to celebrate when he appeared to them again. How did the resurrection impact their life? Even after Jesus had ascended into heaven, they spent the rest of their lives going around this part of the world, telling others about Jesus, about his resurrection. It meant enough to them, but all of them, all of them, except for the gospel writer John were executed or martyred for their faith. That's compelling evidence in and of itself because who would dare die for an imposter or for a phony? 
It's a bit of my story, too. I surrendered my life to Jesus when I was 12 years old, made a decision, was baptized like we just witnessed here a moment ago. Has life been easy since then? No, there's been plenty of ups and downs. We've all known a story like that, but I'm more confident in the resurrected Jesus now than I was then in his presence and his work in my life. There, there is something amazing. Many of you know this about Jesus, about the cross and the empty tomb. He's not only the hope of people like Mary and the disciples, like he's our hope. We want there to be no doubt today who we are about as a church, who we're seeking to live for, the, the message, what we believe to be the most important uh, reason for life in this world. Jesus Christ is the hope for anyone anyone who puts their faith and trust in him. And I can promise you this, whether you're ready to believe this for yourself yet or not, he's your hope too. He, he is all the hope that we need for every single one of us. And that's true no matter who you are. Uh, it's true no matter your story. It's true no matter uh, how confused, distressed you might feel in this world right now and how, how frost, frustrated, uh, lost, or, or lonely uh, in, in fact, I, I believe that Jesus, he is our hope. He is our only hope. And I believe that part of the reason why God brought you here today, uh, why you're here is, is that you might see for yourself the love and the power of Jesus Christ and what it has the potential to do for you. And so I want to take just a few minutes with you today. I want to talk a little bit more about the cross and the empty tomb. And as a way of doing that, I want to look at a story in John chapter 8. All right. And so if you've got your Bible and you want to follow along with us, uh, if you use something like a Bible app on your phone, uh, you can go there. We'll also have these words on the screen. We've been reading and studying through the book of John together this year as a church. And so I'm going to look at a story in John chapter 8. And just so that you're aware, kind of contextually, this is a story that takes place before Jesus was crucified on the cross. Well, we're going to spend a few minutes looking at it, and it's an amazing story that demonstrates for us what the cross and the empty tomb can do for anyone, for any person. And at the same time, I believe that stories like these help us to get to know Jesus just a little bit better. And maybe that'll be part of how God uses it for you today. So John chapter 8, beginning in verse 2, here's what the disciple John writes about this particular event. Verse 2, again, John writes, At dawn, Jesus appeared in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them, which wasn't an uncommon move if you were a rabbi or a teacher back then, as rabbis and teachers often would sit while they taught. And so Jesus sat down, verse 3, the teachers of the law, and the Pharisees brought in a woman who was caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. John wants it to be very clear that she was caught. We can conclude she is trapped she has been found out. How many of you know any sort of a feeling like that? I, I remember attending a Cincinnati Reds baseball game when I was in college. I want it to be very clear that I am a St. Louis Cardinals fan who just happened to go to Cincinnati to watch the Reds play my Cardinals. And uh, I went with a bunch of guys from college. We had a whole row together way at the very top of the stadium because we're college guys, all right? We don't got any money, all right? It was the cheapest place to sit at the stadium. So we sat in this row together. I don't remember a lot about the game, but I do remember the two guys in front of us that got plastered 
plastered throughout the course uh, of the game. And as they went on and as they kept drinking, they got more and more obnoxious. Throughout the game, they had a bag of peanuts and they would take one peanut at a time and they would just throw it at somebody in rows ahead of them just trying to hit somebody in the back of the head. And they did this all evening long. Well, over time, this became a little bit of an issue and people started turning around, looking up in the stands. Who in the world are they going to look at? They're going to look at the row full of college guys, right? And think it's one of us. And so we were picking up what was going on. And as people would turn and look, we would finally, we just started outing the guys. We would, we would stand up and point down at them, all right? Just saying, hey, here are the guys. Here are the culprits. Well, eventually these guys were concerned about getting found out. And so they finally got up from their seats. They left and on their way out, really a brilliant move on their part. They stopped an usher and said, hey, by the way, there's a row full of college guys up there throwing peanuts at people. We've had enough. We're out of here. What happened next? That usher marched right up to our row and said, fellas, you're out of here and was trying to throw us out of the game. We pled our case. And thankfully, there were people around us that witnessed it all and jumped to our defense and we were able to stay and to finish the game. This woman in John chapter eight was trapped. Her story's not a humorous one though. This is incredibly serious. She has been caught in the worst of circumstances, and we don't know her name, and we don't know much about her. We do know that she's a woman, and again, that means she's got no rights in this particular culture. She can't stand on a testimony of her own, and so she's brought, she's been found out guilty into the temple courts by these Pharisees, some of the most so-called religious people of the day. I think you could imagine her fear. And she must have felt helpless and terribly ashamed. Call it the worst day in her life. Little does she realize it would actually turn into the best, most amazing day of her life. What did the Pharisees say to Jesus? Verse 4, they said to him, Jesus teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women or women. Now, what do you say? What a horrible way to die. I was in Israel about five, six years ago. One of the things that we learned is when they would practice this form of punishment, this form of execution, stoning, was they would, they would take the individual to a ledge or to a cliff. They would push them off. If the fall didn't kill them, that's when the individuals would stoop to the ground. They would pick up these rocks and boulders, and they would throw them off of the ledge to stone the individual until they were certainly dead. It's a horrible way to die. This is an ancient world, all right? 2,000 years ago, they handled things differently. This is how you punish the guilty. The Pharisees knew it, and so they brought this woman to Jesus. But there's something fishy going on here, and Jesus realizes it. And the law the Pharisees are referring to, it comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22, when we read, if a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. So keep that in mind. Go back to John 8 for a moment. Maybe you've already thought this for yourself. Where's the guy? I mean, if this woman... We're caught in the act. We all know it takes two. Where's the fella? I'm not sure if you see it or not. Not only is the woman being trapped, Jesus is being trapped too. 
The Pharisees had it out for Jesus. His popularity was increasing rapidly and it threatened their influence. And so they're trying to trap him and they present him with two options that let's either stone her or you can release her. Here's the dilemma with that. Israel was under the control of Rome at the time. Jews didn't have the right to execute anyone without Rome's approval. So if Jesus orders her punished, he's violating local law. But if Jesus orders her or declares her innocent, well, in the Pharisees' mind, that's a rejection of the law of Moses. And the Pharisees know that if Jesus rejects the law of Moses, that's certainly going to impact his credibility and influence. So they think they've got him trapped. But thankfully, Jesus, well, he's brilliant and not only brilliant, but also full of grace and truth and love. Look what he does next, verse 6. John says they were using this question as a trap, just so we're clear, in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Can you picture this? You've got Jesus, this guilty woman, a furious crowd of Pharisees. They're waiting for Jesus to issue a verdict. All of a sudden, Jesus kneels to the ground and starts writing in the dirt. What's he doing? What's he writing? As I was studying this passage this week, they said it wasn't uncommon for a rabbi to make such a move. You know, good teachers, right? Get creative. Get down in the ground, start drawing something, start writing something. We don't know for sure what Jesus was writing. Scholars suggest a number of possibilities. Maybe Jesus was wasting time, you know, thinking about what to say next, maybe giving the Pharisees some time to cool off. A second suggestion is that maybe uh, Jesus uh, acted like he didn't hear them, wanting them to have to say all of this again, maybe thinking if they had to repeat it and could comprehend the terrible thing they were suggesting that maybe, well, they would change their minds. Some people think that Jesus was so overwhelmed with compassion for this woman that he needed just a moment to catch his breath and still others suggest that maybe Jesus was down in the dirt writing out the names of the Pharisees, the individuals, as well as the names of their mistresses, connecting the dots, writing their names in the dirt. We don't know for sure. We don't know, but all we know is that whatever Jesus was trying to communicate with his actions, the point was received especially when Jesus made this next move. Verse seven, it says, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Would you try and put yourself in this woman's shoes and listen to Jesus for yourself? Because in these next few sentences, Jesus is gonna communicate at least three important things that we believe to be true. Three things that have the potential to radically change this woman's life forever. Three amazing things about his love, about the cross, about the empty tomb. But what I hope and pray is that you will hear these words and consider them for your own life. Because if you've ever felt lost, if you've ever felt ashamed before, if you've ever been found out, if you have ever felt the weight of, of past mistakes or some of the present mistakes in your life. May, maybe you'd say, you know what, I, I don't know the power of God's love and grace and forgiveness. This is all so foreign to me. Maybe, maybe you have experienced, you look back to your past, there was a moment when you experienced the, the power of God's grace. In fact, maybe you've got a moment like this when you went before a church family like this one and you were baptized but you don't feel like you deserve it anymore. Jesus has three things to say for every single one of us. 
He said, John records, let the one who has no sin throw the first stone. And then he continued in verse 8. John writes, he stooped down and he rode on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to walk away. The Pharisees, they walked away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Three things we learn about Jesus, the cross, and the empty tomb. The first thing is this, and that is that when it comes to life, when it comes to guilt, when it comes to things like shame and death and our, our loneliness, our, our hate, our brokenness that, that penetrates our hearts, it's this, that we're all guilty. Every single one of us, we've all sinned. Uh, we, we've all walked away from God. Jesus knew what the following verse reminds us. It comes out of Romans chapter 3, verse 23, when we read that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You could say that we all, all of humanity for all of time since the fall, that we all have a sin problem. Vladimir Putin has a sin problem, but so did the late Mother Teresa. She had one too. I have a sin problem. You have a sin problem. We all have a sin problem. Every single one of us in this room. And it doesn't matter how great, uh, it doesn't matter how shameful, how embarrassing your sin, it doesn't matter how small you perceive it to be, whether you even call it sin or not. We all sin. We all fall short of God's standard for living in this world. But these Pharisees, they wanted to punish this woman for her sin problem. And again, the Pharisees were some of the most religious people living at the time. What was Jesus' response to them? Fine. Go for it. I'll tell you what, whoever has no sin in their life, you can throw the first rock, but none could. Everyone walked away except for Jesus. And interestingly, he's the only one that had the right to throw the stone because we know that he lived a perfect life. There was no sin in him, but he doesn't. But we've all sinned. And that means that we're all guilty. But the second thing that we realize is that when it comes to our sin problem, in Jesus Christ, there's a way out. Uh, in Jesus, there's a way through. This is the good news. This is what Jesus, this is what the cross and the empty tomb can accomplish for us. Again, the Pharisees couldn't throw a stone. They were guilty. And so Jesus is left standing with this woman. And look what John writes, John 8, chapter, uh, verse 9. He says, at this those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up in verse 10, and he asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. That word condemned can be defined as useless, uh, empty, somebody that is destined, ready for destruction. What does Jesus say to this woman? I don't see you that way. You're not useless. Uh, your life is not a waste. You weren't created for destruction and neither do I condemn you. Friends, that's the good news of Jesus Christ for this woman. That's the good news of Jesus for every single one of us too. It, it's a reminder to us that your life matters. It doesn't matter who you are. 
You know, it doesn't matter how few years you've lived, how many years you've lived on this earth. Like, your life matters. You're, you're not here by accident. Jesus doesn't want sin to have control or reign or to own you in any way to determine your life or your future. Like, the message of Easter is this, that you are not condemned. You were made for God and that he has you here on this planet for a reason. And yes, each of us has a sin problem. All right, I have a sin problem apart from Jesus, we're all guilty, but the good news of Jesus Christ is just this, that because of the cross and because of the empty tomb, there is a way out. There is a way through. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus is our way out. He died for our sin and he accomplished for us what you or I can never do on our own. And his death means that the punishment for sin has been accounted for finally and for always. And again, the good news of Jesus is that when you put that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and trust in him, his forgiveness, all right, the truth of God is this, that his forgiveness is extended to you to radically change your life forever. And at the same time, we receive Christ's righteousness, the life that he lived that we could never live on our own. Jesus did it for this woman. And again, not just the woman in this story, it's for you. And again, I believe that the very reason that some of you are here today, the very reason that some of you are tuning in online is to hear these words that in Jesus Christ, there is a way out. Jesus came for you. He lived for you. He died for you. He gave up his life on the cross for you. And this act of love and grace, I can promise you this, it is greater than the worst sin you've ever committed in your life. That his love and grace mean that it is better than the worst mistake you or I have yet to make. It, it doesn't matter how far you've fallen in your life. It doesn't matter the questions you've asked, the, the questions that are even on your mind today. It doesn't matter how long you've wandered. It doesn't matter the things that you've said, the thoughts that are in your mind. Can I just tell you this today? Jesus loves you. He loves you and he gave up his life for you. And when you surrender your life to him, your sins are forgiven. You become a child of God and you are given the hope of eternity for the future, but we're given the hope of eternity for today as well. I love one of these words of God. I love them all, but I love out of Isaiah chapter one, verse 18 when we read, come now, let us settle the matter. Basically, God says this, you wanna know what the bottom line is in Jesus? Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be washed as white as snow.